0: Hello, I am Adam Dubin, the director of Murder in the Front Row, and you are listening and watching Middle Aged Metalheads. Posers must die. Welcome
1: back to another episode of Middle Aged Metalheads. Tonight, we have the director of the documentary Murder in the Front Row, Adam Dubin, as our special guest. So, Adam, uh, for those of our listeners who haven't seen the movie, could you just give them a bit of a rundown as to what it's about?
0: sure um murder in the front row is the story of the san francisco bay area thrash metal scene from roughly its beginning and maybe the late 70s or 1980 right through about 1986 uh through the uh, untimely death of cliff burton and at that you know kind of there's there's plenty of story there there's actually plenty of story to make 10 documentaries, but Murder in the Front Row comes from a book by the same name, and it is, uh, it's a book, of mostly mostly pictures, and uh, it's just, it, it's just great, and it inspired me to want to make this documentary, so if you like thrash metal and want, want the sort of the history of it, then uh, then there it is.
2: Yeah, and it's, and it's quite a picture book, too, for anybody who hasn't uh, picked that up, it's, it's basically by uh, David, uh, what's the guy's name, David Liu?
0: Brian Lou, Brian Lou, and and, uh, and Harold Oyman, and they were two early fans of of the scene and of of, you know, heavy metal at that t- it sort of was just happening around them and they, it, yeah. it's
1: amazing the photos those guys have. Yeah. They they were at ground zero of some of the biggest bands ever.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they were just they were just
2: kind of like hanging out just as like dedicated fans and did did a great service to the rest of us by documenting you know, I got they got like the first photos of uh, you know when when Cliff joined the band and basically Metallica was formed and it's uh in its mm-hmm. in it's early sort of before before uh, Kill the Kill Mall was recorded. So uh, just just wonderful stuff. So yeah. so the, so the fil- how, how much is the of uh, the film is based on the on the book? Did you use uh, use that as sort of like a like a source?
0: Yeah, completely. I you know, I was riveted by the book. Um, I met Brian Liu sort of briefly um, at the um, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction for Metallica, actually. And so, yeah, we, and we got, you know, a little, a little bit friendly. We'd throw texts back and forth from time to time. But a few years later, I run into him, and he literally hands me the book. He's like, I, I completed this, and, and I was like, uh, you know, it just stayed with me, these pictures and this, you know, a little bit of story. I just knew there was more story there to these great pictures. So I, you know, I got the wherewithal together to to pull the movie together, and just wanted to tell it. And I think maybe what's a little different than in 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 this story, and you know, you guys have seen it, is I didn't just tell it from the point of view of the um of of like the rock stars, but really from the point of view of the supporters of the scene. You know, I'd say in equal measure, so that. What you had was this kind of very rich story that, that just was all about, you know, a bunch of young people who loved this kind of music, which wasn't necessarily commercial and didn't, you know, nobody knew if this was going to ever, you know, uh, be anything, but they just loved it. It spoke to them and it was powerful. And and so, you know, some people were the photographers in the scene, some people were the artists in the scene, some people drew flyers, booked shows, whatever. And some of them were the musicians who became, you know, famous, but nobody knew that in 1982
3: or 83. For sure. Adam, I'd like to point out that that's one of the things I really liked about the movie was yes. that for for the people that aren't just casual fans, there was a lot of meat to the movie, which I really liked. Because I've seen, we, we had a conversation recently in our group about Motley Crue's The Dirt and and some of the other, other uh, movies that have received some press. And I always, I, I, I look at them and say, is there enough for the real fans if you're a casual fan okay there's enough to get some understanding of things but what about the real fans and your movie was really nice because i obviously as a metalhead know a lot of the the different histories and and some of the 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 backstories of the bands but you really delved into some of those people i had never been introduced to i had never seen some of those personalities and, and some of those stories and i really found that part very fascinating
0: well thank you that's that's uh I think that's one of the things that people are responding to. Um, you know when I when I took it on I, I, I knew it couldn't just be the Metallica story or even Slayer, you know. It was it was it was bigger than that and it was like, you know, Metallica is in the movie, but it's not the Metallica story and and there there's you know, their success is so overwhelming that you can't let them overwhelm the movie. Um, mm-hmm. what I thought was really interesting, a really interesting way to approach this was I said, if you went back in time early enough, now you're in like 1982, 83 when Metallica shows up in the Bay Area. They're not really famous yet. Some people have heard the demo and they like them. But what I thought was really cool was there's like a moment early on when, like, James Hetfield is just this guy who's 18 years old playing this music for a bunch of other people who are 18 years old or 17 or 16 or 15 and enjoying it and a way. They're all equal. The playing field is pretty level. And and I thought that's great. You know, he's not really a guitar, you know, god yet. And that's what I found really interesting. And I wanted to, you know, present that world and that world with, with, you know, James in it and Lars and, you know, and everybody we know, Dave Mustaine. They were just starting out. They were just kids, essentially, you know, trying to figure it out, just like we all were, you know, at that time. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Adam, if you had to, if you, looking at the bands, I really got the vibe that you're a huge Exodus fan.
2: Is,
0: is that true? I, I, I have to say, I, I became more of an Exodus fan. I mean, I knew a the, the bit of their work and everything, but I really, for me, it was a learning experience. I, I am, you know, a, not a Bay Area uh, filmmaker. There's many great Bay Area filmmakers. Um, I'm a Brooklyn-based filmmaker. And I think, you know, my outsider's like look at this gave me an approach and I certainly knew scenes because i had been involved in scenes in another place. uh, But I in New York. But I I really came to like this. I did have one window into it. I mean, I happen to have known Kirk for Kirk Hammett for a very long time. And, you know, every once in a while, he'd give you like a little insight into something. And. I really, if the movie showed anything, I wanted it to show that um, that Kirk Hammett, before Lars and James ever came to the Bay Area, Kirk Hammett was like a mover and shaker and somebody yeah. who was like creating something, and you just see that this guy would have been something had he never joined Metallica, he was already creating uh, something and creating a very edgy kind of music and pushing you know, Thrash, and I, I, you know, a lot of people had an influence on Thrash, and Dave Mustaine certainly had his influence, but there's Kirk Hammett in the Bay Area, you know, two or three years before Lars and James show up, and he's doing it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point to make, Adam, because so often in Metallica, I mean, Kirk's in the shadow of, like, two giant sort of personalities right. in in Lard's and james and uh kirk's like the easygoing one and uh, i think he gets sidelined occasionally uh, yeah. unnecessarily
0: yeah and maybe you know i look he's 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 a wonderful guy and he's you know he's a humble guy and i think he's you know he's just found a way to uh, you know he's he's where he wants to be he expresses himself in so many ways that we who love metal know i mean he's not just a musician because he's this collector of, of, you know, everything in, uh, in art and, and, uh, and horror movies and everything like that. But I I think getting to your question, I think, you know, I, I came to love Exodus more and respect it. I never saw Paul Bailoff play live. I wish I did. But what I, what I really tried to do is even, even not having seen him, most of the people who ever see this movie will have never seen Paul Bailoff live. And I think I want somebody like myself to appreciate what it must have been like to be there and see the, 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 the power of, you know, Exodus and uh, going full throttle and, and Hey, let's face it. I, I don't want to take anything away from it. They're still going strong now, 40 years later. And, you know, with Zetro and the whole thing, and you can still go, you know, when we get back to it, you can go see Exodus live, which is incredible. yeah
3: I've I've always argued instead of the big four, there should be the big five and Exodus should be in that group.
0: Right. So you guys have been doing this a while. Have you ever figured out who's keeping this list?
2: <laughs>
0: and,
1: yeah. uh, I think James.
2: <laughs> and, and, and why is it a big 4 instead of a big 3? And yeah, that's uh it, <laughs> who's figuring this out,
0: you
1: know?
2: <laughs> I think the accountants are thinking it f- are who's figuring it out.
0: by blood is not as influential as, you know, as, as, as Kill em all or something, you know? It's mm-hmm. absolutely yeah, everyone. You, yeah.
3: You drove that point home in that movie, which, again, I really appreciate it because I, I of course, own it and listened to it. But I never really put that aspect of the influence to that record. And that really helped me to appreciate it. So, Adam, if you had to pick your thrash band for the record, for the for the audience, who is your number one band?
0: Well, I mean, I've had an unusual situation. I've, I've been, you know, remarkably fortunate to work for Metallica for so many years. And. And you know, I, I've just come to know and love that band. It's it's it, it's all good to me. Um, I I enjoy what they do and seeing them kind of work it out. And even when they stumble a little, it's interesting to me. Um, so I have that. But I have to say that that really digging into the catalog, um, in a different way. I mean, you know, we all know Megadeth. It's been with us for forever, and I think it's it's amazing music. But I really uh, learned a lot more and you know you start to listen to it a new way as you break it down and figure out how it's going to fit into a film like this and great appreciation for uh, what Dave achieved Dave and Dave and everybody else in that band musicianship is remarkable uh, exodus as you mentioned I really you know really come come to uh, just love all of it in a, in a new way you know come back to it with, with new ears and just really appreciate it so metallica is my all-time fave it just it just will be because they're they're entwined in my life you know but uh right. but the other bands you know that's what's kind of great you get away from them you know what i mean it's like it's like getting away from the beatles for a while because then you come back and you appreciate it more you know and it's the same thing you get to you come back to megadeth you go ooh, i never heard that before i i haven't you know i'll just say it here for this record i think that the last record that megadeth did dystopia is as good as anything they ever did you know really yeah. really fine music if you listen to it and and just holds right up with everything yeah, yeah
1: we've said the same thing about metallica i mean hardwired is a fantastic record here here's bands that are 35 40 years into their career still putting out just phenomenal music
0: it's unbelievable it's really enjoyable to, to hear that yes i agree
2: so we have to ask then uh death deposers and all you got any, you got you got any
0: favorite Ozer metal bands that you uh, listened to back in the day um i i definitely listened I, you know i i got to los angeles in literally right in the the late 80s and and stuff and um i'll, I'll tell you a story that 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 i think kind of expresses it for me there was a lot of great stuff going on now i get the whole posers must die thing and it's like <laughs> you know, it's fun when you're building a little scene and i get it it's, it's an us versus them world and it, believe me it happened in the east coast too with the beastie boys and 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 certainly happened in hip-hop on the east coast i mean it's the, yeah. the minute it got going any place else it was like you know it was east coast versus west coast first to south for i mean hey yeah I, can't we all get along folks you know it's all great you know i mean you can't say like west coast hip-hop wasn't good you know it was great you know and it's so i this is like this really cool story and it's not in the movie but tom hunting when we were in alvarito park which is one of the last scenes in the movie because that takes them back to where they first played for free for people um let's face it a lot of those you know supposedly poser metal bands there's some great musicianship there and you know rot the band rat even took a little abuse in my film because some of the people was on the same bill with metallica at day on the green the famous day on the green but tom hunting's talking to me and he says you know he'd be there back in the day so this is like you know the early 80s they're like oh you know rat sucks and all that you know just because they're they represent, I guess, something to do with the Sunset Strip. But then he, he he says to me, you know, and then i go home and put on my rat records because Warren B. Martini's forever. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. you know, he's kinda right. You know what I mean? There's some yeah. fantastic musicianship. So you can't really throw the whole thing out. It's like yeah. we all have our secret pleasures and, and it's all good now. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think Gary Holt and the guys, they recognize that too in the in the book Louder Than Hell, where they talk about like how much they would would just persecute the so called posers, but at the end of the day, they'd go to their shows because that's where the chicks were, right? <laughs> and, and, and and they respected the hell out of the musicianship of of the band, and it was just kind of there was a, re- a weird kind of envy uh, of the band that it's like ah they're 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 more handsome than us, they get chicks, and uh, it's it, it's it's an interesting thing because uh, you know it, it leads to the question here. You know, besides uh, it not being L.A., why why do you think that, that you know the, the San Francisco Bay Area became such a hotbed for the thrash metal scene? Um, and 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 again, I think the thing that you capture really well in the film too is like, why is it that everyone has this such a such a sense of fondness for the place and for the people and uh, and and as a kind of a hometown, a place where they haven't forgotten their roots, mm-hmm. which all, it goes with you know. You should say that John and I are from the Bay Area, close enough, you know, from the Bay Area that we we saw plenty of shows there at the Cow Palace, Oakland Coliseum, you know, we did the Monsters of Rock at Candlestick Park and stuff like that. So, the first time we met Kirk was at a Fangoria
1: weekend of horrors.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I still have his signature on my Evil Dead uh, poster.
0: <laughs> it's the best. He 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 lives it and breathes it. So here's the thing. I mean, I I made this film, and I, you know, I'm still trying to sort of figure out why why the Bay Area, and I I think it goes back to the very beginning of the of the film, and that's why I put it in there. Is that really if you look at the Bay Area, it's it's a melting pot, and it's been that way for a a really long time there's in a way there's there's nothing that different about this happening in the bay area because it's happened in the bay area so many times and and they've been very accepting of um of new ideas and and new styles right along and so it happened in the jazz era it happened with the beat poets you know the the beat poets couldn't just go anywhere and read that kind of poetry they had you know new york they can get away with it and, and san francisco and of course even then there was you know the outcry about howell and everything but mm-hmm. the area supported it and and then you get to of course the probably most famous of scenes was the the psychedelic 60s thing that yeah. you know bill graham the
2: hate ashbury yeah
0: uh, and hate and you got you know the dead, and you got a whole movement that happened there and sprang up and then you know, jazz was supported there, and then lo and behold, you know, a whole other generation later, you have this thrash metal thing. I think it's something about being on the coast, and sort of it's, it's sort of as far west as you can go before you drop off into the ocean. And so you, you <laughs> sort of have a coming together. It's almost in the same way that, like, Liverpool was a port, and that's why the, the, all the guys in Liverpool, the Beatles amongst them, we're able to get these records and these sounds from all over the place that a lot of other people didn't get or they got lost. Right. But I, I will say it generated in, in, in the young people there, uh, one of my favorite parts of the movies, that early part where where you see Kirk Hammett's the same as everybody else. He was just a kid going out looking for his records, and I'm sure mm-hmm. like, we're all this enough of the same age to remember going – Doing everything it took to get to a record store, having just enough money to maybe get one record, dig it through the record bins to find something cool. Yeah. And I really wanted to capture that idea, which was prevalent in the, in the Bay Area, but in a lot of places, too, because I think it's so universal, especially the guys like us. And I want that to be in there for years from now when nobody remembers doing that, you know. Okay.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I totally remember making a, a pilgrimage to the vault um I, I think john i don't know if you remember but it was like eighth grade we had like some sort of field trip this is eighth grade and we were supposed to go to the de young museum and then we had like time to just explore and we walked i it must have been like five miles to, to get to the vault right and uh I, I i picked up a record i won't tell you what it, it was queen's right the warning um on, on vinyl which was like basically like a like a fish with a bicycle because I didn't have a record player at the time but it was totally cool but just but 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 going to that place and 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 just kind of getting into that part of town was just uh again kind of like a worthwhile young metalhead pilgrimage dude i miss it
1: now i we're all on quarantine <laughs> and i'm like fuck man i just want to go to the record store and like look at some CDs and like buy some metal yeah no I, yeah. i'll just stick with what i got
0: there was the other thing, and it probably attracted you, which was the the art. You know, I mean, of course, uh, you know. And I'm gonna, and I'm not like somebody who collects vinyl in the sense I don't. am not like like I don't. I'm a record player now, but I mean, I love the art. And how, we all stared at the artwork. We'd buy an album we didn't know what was in it because of good yeah. art. And mm-hmm. yeah. and. Uh, you know, and then you know, you get home with the, you know the, that band Angel had the best logo in the <laughs> <laughs> get don't home. get
2: call started. <laughs> <laughs> like, Art
0: man, it was
3: so cool. Yeah. So no, you I love, I, I love old <laughs> Angel. Sorry. Yeah, thought, sorry. yeah,
4: no, I mean those those were really those were the times. I mean, I I specifically remember you know we would get a ride down to Jeremiah's, which is like right on the other side of the line of Delaware in Delaware and Pennsylvania. And it was one of the only places you could go to get the stuff that's kind of not at Sam Goody or R- Record Bar or whatever. And you'd only have, like, barely enough money for one record. That's it. And the amount of effort you put in to spend, you know, $16.04 was amazing. Right. <laughs> you know, nowadays you would never deal you know, like, hey, let's drive this far to, to do this one thing. You would never do that anymore.
0: Right. Um, but you might. You might do that now. <laughs> well, and, and I felt that was that was important to get out there as we get further and further away from those times. It's like, you know, I mean, now it's like if you found a style of music you liked on the internet, you could dial up, you know, 50 bands to do that or whatever. You know, I mean, you just would It's It's the, the, the searching for it and the longing. And, of course, that made the finding it so much sweeter. And what did you want to do? You want to share it with all your friends that love that too. So that camaraderie, I think, is a... Uh, is is a wonderful thing to preserve that that we you know I think we we captured it in the film
4: yeah yeah now th- based on on what you just said this is a perfect segue cuz I got to know every other music scene whether it's now or back then had this sense of rivalry whether it was in the in the city whether it was west coast east coast here there whatever you know city to city somehow sure. thrash manages to have the attitude of kind of pulling each other up rather than shoving each other down. What was it about these bands that they were willing to, to lend so much support in the community and, and amongst themselves?
0: I I, I think it was that it was a tight enough knit group that, that it was, it was small enough at least at the time it was happening. So there's a couple comments. I mean, Kirk said to me off camera, just as we were talking when I was getting the movie going and everything, he was like, I think there was only 150 or 200 people there. And the, some of the other people kind of confirm it, too. And that's, you know, at its very core essence, it was probably pretty small. So you, you kind of knew everybody. Um, and I think as it got going, though, you know, you wanted to broaden it. Of course, the tape traders were, 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 you know, really part and parcel with 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 getting this thing all over, and then uh, one of my favorite comments in the movie is by Gary Holt when he says, when he says this thing of like, you know, the Bay Area was the, the epicenter of Thrash Metal, and if your own area was not welcoming you, we would be, and so you could come to the Bay Area and get a gig at Ruthie's or one of the other places. Exodus might be your support or one of the other bands. And they would probably lend you gear. I mean, it wasn't like a competition of like, oh, you know, these, this band's from whatever, the Midwest, and, you know, we got to fight them. It was like, hey, you're brothers. You like the same thing. You know, come on in and play. As long as you were, you know, your heart was in the right place for that kind of music, they welcomed you. And I think I think it's extraordinary. I think it, it's great. And, and that's that was another reason. When I talked to Brian Liu and Harold Weinman, which were my first, you know, conversations about doing this, they kept hitting on this one word camaraderie and you know it, it i didn't have to like put those words in anybody's mouth everybody who i interviewed in one way or another testified to the same thing so it's there you know can you can you
4: talk a little more about wes robinson and ruthie's and how that became kind of this you know this focal point this this focal point of support for the scene sure
0: so you know as i as i studied up on this and i laid out the groundwork for what would be the movie you can't cover everything you got 90 minutes you got to do the best you can i wanted to keep it tight and fast like the music itself so i was like there's all these great clubs in the bay area and they each have a bit of a history to them and and the flyers testify to the fact that like people played all these clubs so you got the Mabuhay gardens and you've got the stone and you've got the omni and and all these, you know, very on Broadway. And, you know, each one had a bit of a story to it. Okay. You then get to Ruthie's Inn. And as I studied this, it was very obvious that Ruthie's had a special place in everybody's heart. And one reason was this man, Wes Robinson, who's now gone, but um, he booked the club. And he was an older guy to everybody then. And he was like a jazz aficionado, and indeed, he booked jazz and blues at the club. But he heard something in this music, and I think it's because his his hearing, you know, his ear was advanced enough that he could hear where the cutting edge was. And at one time, probably when he was listening to jazz, jazz was the cutting edge of what was going on. And so he starts booking Exodus, first band to play at at Ruthie's Inn on a kind of mixed bill with like blues bands. And then it just became he's booking thrash metal every week, every other week. And he's giving them a home and a place to play and practice, and that's so important. So he really was a guy who made a difference in in the lives of these young people who were playing. And, you know, there was a place when Slayer came up. They could play there. Um, so, of course, he's not with us anymore, but uh, we were very grateful to have – his daughter, uh, Daryl Ali, to speak on his behalf. And she she speaks beautifully about how he just saw these young folks as not like crazy kids and not, you know, devil worshipers as some people might have seen, but just as like people playing a cutting edge kind of music that was full of energy. And, you know, if we go back far enough, jazz in its time was the thing that parents were like, if you listen to that, you're going to go to hell. And isn't that what metal was in its time, you know? It's yeah. like the same thing. Same parents, same everything.
2: Yeah, and it's, and it's interesting that you uh, the film begins with that, uh, that little epigraph from Kerouac. The idea that, you know, that the bebop is the sound of the children at night. It's, you know, right. there, there's, there's something that the, the parents, you know, it's not for the parents. And the, the, the kids right. totally get it. But uh, you also include that uh, journalist who's commenting on the 1985 day yeah. in the green. Kind of like oh, the, the Metallica's like homecoming, sort of like bash. And uh, the, the reporter was saying, uh, quite without prejudice, just saying, like, you know, this was not music I was into. I didn't really understand it. But he he says that he understood like the the, the cons- what do say the, the the consumer appreciation of it, the sense just- that like yeah, right. Yeah, the consumer satisfaction is like there's something here that there is a rising that people are getting into and and he had to like respect
0: that. Anyway, sure. That that, that critic, I only had had one and I thought he was important to represent something. I didn't want to um I didn't want to use something. I didn't want to make him look like like an out of touch, you know, guy or whatever. Joel Selvin is the is like the esteemed rock critic of of the Bay Area. And, you know, he's been doing it for so long that, you know, he goes back to the to the, the Grateful Dead days and everything. And clearly he's a you know, product of of that era. Now, to his credit, he admits that he didn't get Metallica when it when it first sort of came out. And you see it there in, in the comment. Mm-hmm. But he went on to say, you know, at least he appreciated that the young people there got it. And I think in that sense, he could he could understand it. And he, he in further comments, he came around to, to saying that, you know, as Metallica took root as, you know, one of the, the massive bands of the of the ongoing Bay Area. I mean, he really got it. And he's interviewed them many times. He writes for the San Francisco Chronicle. And I thought it was important to to have, you know, I tried to have a little bit of each. I tried to have a guy who worked at the record vault. I tried to have somebody, you know, who drew the flyers. I tried to, you know, and again, I tried to have this 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 uh, commentary from. An esteemed rock critic who, at least, could admit he he didn't get it, but but could understand that something was happening here.
2: Yeah, and and, and it comes when it comes from a, an older generation, it seems to legitimize yeah. it in a way. It's like this is something that people are beginning to recognize that there is, you know, that in in this case, Metallica is you know the band that's the the cream that's rising from from this this yeah. much larger scene.
0: Correct. I mean, I have a, there's sort of another story to it. And like, you know, Bill Graham, the great promoter of the, the <laughs> yeah. area, you know, a tough character, but I mean, you know, he certainly opened, you know, his venues, I mean, that's where you would play. Now he didn't get Metallica either. It was presented to him as like, these guys should be on the bill. Thank you, Kill. These guys should be on the bill at, at uh, Day on the Green. And he's like, who, you know what, this, this band? I mean, he, he doesn't, he doesn't. He doesn't get it. And he, but thankfully listened to uh, people. Tony Isabella was a programmer for the young, the woman who's in the film. And she tells a great story about taking James to, to see Bill Graham. And, uh, but she was the one who like, she booked Metallica continuously and ultimately booked him, booked Metallica very famously for two nights at the Kabuki theater. They sold it out in early 1985. And she used that as a thing to go, Bill, they just sold out the kabuki for two nights. They can do this, you know, and had them on the bill. And, of course, them being on the bill with Day on the Green changed everything in a sense. Now, six years later, they're headlining Day on the Green. Bill Graham got it eventually.
1: <laughs> 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 we were there.
0: You know, yeah. it right. you guys were there. And it, it just, it, you know, it took a while for another generation to realize – what this generation that's not even a new story i mean that could be taken back to the rock and roll days you know it's 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 just new stuff developing and when when people come around to it it really just points out how advanced a guy like wes robinson was that he could hear it and he was a
2: generation yeah you gotta you have to have a certain kind of cool you have to like be able to kind of like shut down whatever your 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 taste bud uh, prejudices might be and just kind of go with the music um so, so again, kind of thinking about the the, the the sort of special location that the Bay Area is, we know that Metallica didn't start off in the Bay Area. Slayer is not a Bay Area band. Mustaine is from Southern California. All the dudes are from the southern from Southern California. Right. Um, and it, so, so again, it kind of becomes like a really interesting question that I think that the film begins to kind of give us a, a better idea of, and and, and it gets, I, I guess, more of a sort of an existential question like can we ever have scenes again where seeds scenes need like record stores they need tape traders they need fans who are like kind of embedded in the scene and like you were suggesting too like if, if you could just listen to any kind of music on a streaming service you could see anybody live on youtube do you need to go out and support bands do you need to even be a musician can you just like just just kind of like you know, do the thirty-one different flavors, and like not really care for one over the other.
0: Well, I, you know, I, I, I was as I as I kind of toured the movie around. I mean, people would ask me about various scenes and you know what I thought, and I said, it's you know, it's certainly easier to check out different kinds of music now. So, but I will say this, and we all know this, it's like there is no substitute for live performance. And, you know, I mean, now, especially in these days of Corona, we're all jonesing for it. (laughs) Look forward to getting back to it again. I mean, I think we'll all, you know, we will all thrash again and, and enjoy that live experience. There's nothing like that. And so I think where you have a place where a bunch of people can get together, they're gonna support young bands. That's what was so important. That's what I realized about, about this, was band, young bands need supporters. They need it now more than ever. But you could even say back in those days when Exodus was a young band, before they even got their record deal, I mean, they weren't making any money off recordings. There's no radio station that was playing mm, that. Off, yeah. you know, KUSF and a so couple of couple places like that. And so what you had was they were being supported by the fact that they could play Ruthie's Inn every other week and then they could play the other clubs. And a lot of it was the same people, but you still, you know, you grow your fan base a little bit. Most people yeah. would pay whatever it was, five dollars, to come in and see you, and it would keep the band alive until they could could get going. And that mm-hmm. I think, is is good. I mean, in the end run, I don't probably Exodus has not made a lot of money off their recordings. You know, Metallica has made, <laughs> made money off their recordings,
2: but Exodus For sure, yeah.
0: hasn't. But they've made money, and they can still go out and be a band by playing and so i think that you can still have a scene it's just the the music the the idea of making money off music has been totally you know uh, ripped apart in a way but i think you can go play live and i think maybe that makes it more necessary now than ever before okay
2: yeah no and i guess we'd all agree that like there's nothing there's no replacement for for seeing a band live and but you but you need someone to like draw you there if it's you know, if you just see the bands on, you know, the YouTube, or you just hear a track or two ear, you might just, eh, they're good. I'll listen to something else though. But uh, right. I think Colin, you got a question here for uh, for Adam. I, I do, I do. So uh, when
3: I was watching, as I told you, Adam, I'm looking for for details and for information that I may not have had before. So I really was interested when you were taking a look at the deaths of Cliff Burton and Paul Bailoff. and because I. Again, we we know they had passed. We know that's that's part of this right. scene. Um, but you really delved into that, which I found really interesting to watch. I, I, I really liked the scene where the bandmates are going to look at the at the tombstone for Paul, and of course having the girlfriend of Cliff there and and Cliff's parents. How did you? How much? When you were looking at having to put those two pieces in the movie, was it intentional? that you wanted to delve so deeply into the depth of those two characters.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, again, I laid the whole movie out on paper beforehand and it's such a rich story that I knew there were certain stories I wanted to tell in the film and that that's what I'd have time for 90 minutes of of film. Um, honestly, you could, you know, I'll put it out there now. If Netflix wants to pay me to make a four hour documentary of the Bay area, I'm (laughs) doing it. Um, it's a, it's an incredibly rich story. And in that, you have sort of a few people that passed away that are very important. Nothing cuts through the, every piece of it the way Cliff Burton does. And it's, yeah. you know... Now, I I approached the movie in a certain way, and this is exactly in line with, the you know, the wishes of Brian and Harold and myself, which was that we were not going to be salacious in any way and that this is not going to be behind the music or something like that, where we're digging dirt. Uh, you know, is there sex and drugs and rock and roll? Yeah, there's all that stuff, but it's really, it's almost, it's so exploited. I I don't really, I don't care about all that stuff. That's not what interests me. The music is what interests me. And, um, and so the, the death of Cliff Burton had to be handled very carefully. Um, I don't need a blow by blow description of what happened when the bus crashed. We, it, it's out there if anybody wants to search it down, I don't, I don't care. Um, I, it, as we did these interviews, it sort of got out into the community of the Bay Area people that we were telling the story the right way, like in a straightforward, honest way and respectfully of the people in the scene. And each thing kind of, you know, you you play your cards right, you earn your way up. You get the respect of people. And so people who were more apt to come forward. And fortunately, one of those people was Corinne Lynn, the girlfriend of Cliff Burton at the time. And uh, she has not done many interviews. I think she talked to an author of a book and stuff. And you could see why. I mean, it's incredibly personal and and incredibly painful. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's a wonderful uh, woman. And... I'm so grateful that she trusted me with her story and it, and it made that story all that more poignant. Um, Ray Burton had became known to many people because he, you know, carried the torch for Cliff for so yeah. long in a beautiful way and and gave us every one of us an opportunity to connect with Cliff, you know, well past you know his his time Jesus, on this.
2: Yeah.
0: So um. He came forward and did a, did a beautiful interview. And with that, I really t- felt I, I you know I told the story in a personal way. And that's really what this movie was about, was, was telling telling the story in a personal and emotional way. Bailoff was a different kind of character. You can't do that with in the same way with him. He brings a smile to everybody's face. Because <laughs> he was yeah. he was that larger than life character. And yeah. so with him, I felt that his friends told it in 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 a way that brought him to life. I also interviewed his girlfriend, um, Elizabeth Francois. And I think I got a piece of him that while he was, you know, he could come off as the crazy party animal, almost like this John Belushi type metal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Kind of what it looked like. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) a thing that, that that is across that. Um, He also had his side, you know, he was so beloved by his friends that you have to think there was, there's, there's, Kind of a real heart of gold underneath that bravado of of posers must die, and, uh, and again he brings brings a smile to everybody's face. So I think you know I, I was I was I was lucky. If again if you if you if you play your cards right and you do an honest job, you, you get rewarded. One of the rewards was that um, uh, Gary Holt and Tom Hunting gave me a bit of their time. And I, and I, I didn't tell them where to go. I did not. I just said, I want to spend some time with you. You know, I kind of had an idea we'd go to Ruthie's. That was, that was a good one, but I didn't, I didn't pick the rest of it. Uh, Gary did actually. And he said, he said, we're going to, you know, we literally had two hours and he was like, we're going to go to Ruthie's. We're going to go to Alvarito park because that's where we started playing together in these open air shows for, you know, no money. And, uh, and then we're going to, we're going to go to Paul's grave. And I'm like, great you know let's let's go and you know it's documentary you can't script that stuff i mean it's just it's their hearts we're we we're, we're open at that moment they're sitting in front of ruthie's tell me about you know this is where you really got a lesson in violence and then you know the park and then of course paul's grave it was just it was incredibly moving and i, I feel rewarded to have been there with them so You know, it was, I mean, you know, Gary's on the verge of tears. It's, 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 it's difficult, you know, it's difficult. And, uh, yeah. And I think we all know that. I mean, I didn't know Paul, but you know, it moved me and, but I think what, what it really connects to is, is at this point, you know, we've all lost people. And I think we connect to that. And I think that's the emotion that, that is brought up there. So yeah, it's, it's very strong storytelling and, and, you know, it's part of this Bay area story.
1: For sure. And Adam, you're you're to be commended by you talked about gaining street cred with with the rest of the bands. Like as as the four of us were watching the documentary, we were blown away by the amount of people you had in the movie. Like anyone who listens to our podcast, Adam talks to fucking everyone. Like (laughs) it's like the Mount Rushmore of thrash and they're all in it. I, I guess the question would be, is there anyone you weren't able to talk to that you wanted to?
0: Um, I, I felt I, I had the people I needed. If I wanted more, I could have got more. But I was very particular about one thing. You sometimes see documentaries where they, they've over-interviewed. They've interviewed so many people that it's like each person only gets like a, a headshot, you know, a couple times, and then and then it moves on, right? You don't really get to know anybody. And I, I really wanted to, to interview people and give them some time on screen. Have them come back again so you got to know them. And, and I, I think we did that. Ultimately, we interviewed a little over 50 people. Um, I think an example of that is people have asked me, you know, they, they see Charlie Benante in there. And they go, how can you even interview Scott Ian? And I'm like, oh, no, oh come uh, on. It's great. Scott Ian is, is interviewed a lot. And if I thought I needed more of the, um, of the tale of anthrax in this, I would have done it. But Charlie is great. Charlie is awesome and and Charlie tells the story really well. And, and, you know, I was like, once I interviewed him, I started to edit it. I was like, I got it. You know I mean? There it is. So some, I don't think there was really somebody, I I have to tell you it was, it was, uh, I really wanted Dave Mustaine in there and I don't, and his voice needed to be there. And I had to really, really pursue that one. And uh, a lot of help from David Ellison on that and Brian Liu. Um, I don't. I did not have a personal relationship with Mustaine, and I was a little leery that he might see me as Metallica's guy or something. And I'm, you know, not in in this. I have incredible respect for Dave Mustaine. I, I didn't even ask him at all about. You know, I mean, I think it's ridiculous. Again, I wasn't going into slacious stuff, so I'm not going to be like, hey, tell me about when he right. got kicked out of Metallica. That's nonsense. That is that's not even the story. That's not. Right. I don't want the music. What's amazing about Mustaine is everything he did after that, and yes you know what i mean and, and so i was
2: yeah absolutely
0: so the one other guy i'll tell you about that we pursued in in a, in a way and and i'm amazed that we got and pleased we got him but but he had heard from a lot of people that we were doing this the right way and that's larry lalonde you know from uh,
2: okay
0: you know from possessed yeah and and so you know I, it's, it's very personal to him from I, I understood from a lot of people that you might not get him. He doesn't talk about those days a lot. And I was like, all right, you know, we'll we'll see. He was maybe the last or the second to last interview that we got. And I have to credit my producer Jack Gulick with this. He pursued him over the course of probably a year and a half and and just kept on not not being a pest, just checking in with him. And I think through that time, Larry probably heard from enough people that we're, we're telling us the right way. Um, you know, there's another great person of the scene, uh, Debbie Bono, who was a manager. Yeah. yeah.
2: Then, okay? I totally appreciated that inclusion there,
0: mm-hmm. but to Larry, that's very personal because he, uh, he, uh, you know, went out with her daughter and she was, you know, very much a mother figure to him. So, that I think that's not stuff he gives up lightly. You know, it's 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 right there at the at the core of his being when he was like a sixteen-year-old trying to to learn. But I have to say this: once he agreed to the interview and 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 we met, he was coming through town with uh, New York. I'm saying with uh, with Primus, and you know, we said we'll do whatever we have to do. We'll meet you where we have to go, and we did. And he was incredibly forthcoming. There was no, you know uh, holding back on his part. He was, and, and it's great. I'm, I'm very happy that he was part of it, you
2: know? Yeah. And I, and I'd have to add too that. I was, you know, for, for a scene like, uh, like the thrash metal scene that doesn't really include, uh, a whole lot of ballads or a whole lot of women. Um, right. it was, it was really, uh, interesting and i would say impressive and 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 with with some appreciation that you include included a lot of the ladies who were part of the scene there uh like like debbie um as as well as as some of the women who were you know cutting checks for metallica Um, yeah yeah and 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 kind of like gave a little bit more fullness to the scene because uh we we know behind every you know, m- you know, metal raging maniac. There's got to be a girlfriend there. There's somebody who's helping to pay the rent. There's somebody who's paying the bills and, you know, or, or just supporting the band and, and you know, being, uh, you know, as as Debbie was kind of like a metal mom. And that that just kind of like gives a little bit more sort of, uh, you know, introspection in, into the whole scene there.
0: Yeah, exactly. I really you know, had to strive as, as you know, yeah, thrash, thrash metal. I mean, you look, the, the photos tell the story, you know, the women are few and far between, but they were a tight knit group. And I really wanted to get across um, how respected they were. You know, they were like, I mean, the, the, you know, the word groupie did not come up and, and should I, not.
2: Come I, up, absolutely not.
0: They were like sisters to the band and, and you got, you really understood that if, if any guy had, somebody disrespected one of these ladies at that time they you know they would get sorted out and quick so um no they were they were really great and you know you see the the again the word supporter is the best word you know they supported the guys in the same way that that um you know someone once asked me well do, you know was there any uh, metal musicians or female metal musicians and uh, you know if i could have found one in those photographs or you know to be interviewed i would have i would have gone for it i didn't yeah. see But clearly, I want to show that the women played a very important role in in what was going on and and are, are, you know, deeply uh, respected because of that. Yeah. Mm.
2: Yeah. So thanks for that. Speaking of the role, I want
3: to talk about the role of narrator if I can.
0: Yeah. because because
3: I've had the pleasure of meeting Brian Passin a couple times and I, I love that dude. he's just awesome. I, I stood next to him at a Slayer show once and it was just I was more excited to just stand by him than I was to see Slayer for the you know tenth time or whatever uh, <laughs> right. how did how did he get he's a big he's a big guy and he's so friendly and he'll it, just talk to you about anything but anyway how did how did he get involved in this narrator role for your film?
0: So uh, my wife, Rochelle Lou Dubin who was also a producer on a film she uh, books comedians. I mean she, she that's like her, her job in her field and she's booked for years and she booked, uh, if any you know any of you know the, um, the festival um, uh, Bonnaroo uh, that takes place uh, you know every year in Tennessee. Uh, she doesn't book it anymore, but for 14 years booked comedy there. Brian was one of the guests one year. And, um, and, and so, you know, I mean, we, we just, you know, uh, some of my other films I've directed for, for many comedians. So, um, you know, we sort of have a, 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 a working, you know, and friendly relationship with some comedians. I, I've met Brian on many occasions. Of course, we've talked a little bit about, you know, metal, uh, as it comes up. And, uh, but I, I don't have a, uh, we're not like huge friends or something, but, you know, it, through Rochelle, we got, to their manage to his management. Now Brian's an interesting case because Brian could easily and I considered having him as an interview in the film. He was at the day on the green in 1985. He was at many shows, of course, he's attended tons of metal shows. He's a Bay Area guy I mean, he lived up a little bit north of there but would like beg his mother to like come down to shows that's (laughs) a (laughs) lot he is more metal than you that's (laughs) yeah he's he's, he's hardcore metal and he's got like the 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 nerd thing dialed in tight you know for that so he's (laughs) he he checks off a bunch of boxes for that okay so we got to him and we only had to ask once i mean i said i we asked he came in uh, at a great you know it only took a, a uh, I think an hour and a half to, to get, get it all down. I did different takes and of course I would say read it straight and then do it your way, be Brian and he would be Brian and it was way funnier and greater. <laughs> and, and, and and his personality came through and you got the feeling that believe me, when I originally thought of this film, I I, I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna have to get somebody who's the voice of God. You know what I mean? Somebody above <laughs> it all, you know, who is unimpeachable. And I was thinking like, can I get Take a Facenda? Or yeah, somebody that's like you know Iggy Pop or I don't know even who you know somebody who's like beyond in, you know impeccable credentials. And then when Brian came up, I was like, nah, he's the right guy. We only ever asked him. I didn't like like send out letters to ten people. And and he was so right, and it was so right on it. It, it became one more layer, it became personal. And I asked him about it, and I said, you know, Brian, I said I was thinking of, of interviewing you for the film, and, and he said, oh no no, he goes, I'm so glad to do this. He says, I really am much happier as the narrator. And I was like, great. So it worked out all around. So really glad you appreciated it. Cause it's a great, it's just, it's like one more thing that just, just felt right. You know?
4: Yeah. It's, it's such a great thing to, I mean, I, I thought that the addition of him as the narrator was both uh, comforting is not the right word. Right. But it's like somebody, you know, not somebody who's telling you about something, you know, and right. it was perfect. You know, I was telling the guys, you know, when we when I first met you at the mm-hmm. Philly show, yep. right? It was in a what used to be a mortuary <laughs> over on Ridge Avenue and it was in a venue. It there was a stage. You know, if it weren't for the seats, we probably would have been jumping around, but it was the perfect venue to see the show mm-hmm. with guys from the New Jersey crew. Yeah. Guys from around Philly. You know, I brought my buddy Stymie, who I've been playing in thrash bands with since high school. Right. And everything about it was perfect. And I think that there's something about the way you did it and the folks involved. And I think you mentioned the the natural kind of community and camaraderie of the scene. It just seems like this have you have you thought about a sequel i mean this could be a series talking about maybe anthrax
0: overkill nuclear assault some of the beast coast yeah i I mean you know look there 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 could and should be another version of this with Lemours and stuff like that oh yeah should be i i've been just saying this everywhere i went i said testament its Mm own documentary death yeah Absolutely, it's own documentary. And by the way, this beard was a, a Will Carroll rally beard. You know, what I mean? that was
2: right. That was right there on my list. There, Adam. It's like yeah. <laughs> get, get some more Testament and Death Angel into the scene. Yeah. I so, mean, yeah,
0: total. Those are their own stories. I mean, I, I of course interviewed just Mark Osogata to 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 get something somebody in from from Death Angel. And he's great, but I mean, you know, uh, Rob or Will. I mean, any of those guys. It's like it's like it's all great. And so really, I mean, it, it's just, you know, what this, what I found, though, was, again, that book, Murder in Front Row became the touchstone. It was like, it was like the Bible. Anytime I, I had a question of which way things could go, because at various times, you could take the story a little this way or that way, I'd go back to the book. And I would use the, uh, the, 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 the great photographs. And I would say, well, you could tell 10 stories here, but if if you don't have really good photographs to support it, and video is even harder to come by, so it's like then now you're just telling a story, you know. So it's like, and that's just talking heads. You need the photographs. So if, if there's a book of photographs of let's say Lemore's, that would be, go a long way to telling that story. Or you'd have to assemble something of Death Angel. Yeah. I think it could be done. I'm just saying it's it's you know it's you that's a lot of work. Just work for four years and get that out there. <laughs>
2: That would and, and that that would be an awesome project. So yeah. we're 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 putting it out there to people because we know, you know, our listeners and all they have the stories about the the shows they saw at Lemore's, uh, which which they call the Lemours the out Lemours. here, just because <laughs> because they do. Yeah. Um, but Adam, uh, go, ahead, go ahead, Mike.
1: No, 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 no. We we were just gonna say. I mean, outside of Murder in the Front Row, you've done so much work and all of us included tonight are huge fans of the BC boys and, and wanted to ask you a bit about, uh, I mean, you were at ground zero for Def Jam records. I I mean, literally, uh, what was that like? I I mean, were you more of a hip hop guy when you were younger and, and, or more of a metal guy who just got stuck with Rick Rubin?
0: (laughs) Well, that was the cool thing about Rick Rubin is that he was, he was both those things, you know, he was all of it. And, and, I mean, ear was way more advanced than me. I mean, I you know, the, when, when, you know, I had to, like, get my way to Slayer. I wasn't quite there. I was, you know, I like something, but Slayer was really there until I saw them live at Lamours And then I was like, oh, okay, this is like, you know, this is like hardcore on some other level. Um, so we were listening to, like, you know, like punk stuff and, and metal stuff. And, and, but you got to remember in 82, 83, hip hop was rising. It was coming out of the Bronx. It was, it was filling New York city. It was filtering out through, through tapes, the same, same thing, just, you know, all across the country. And people were taping the, the, this, the, the the radio shows that were putting out some hip hop late at night uh, uh, in, on New York radio and sending them all over the place. So, um, it was, in, it was interesting. That's why I understand scenes, because that was going on. And the Beastie Boys were one of the bands that were part of the scene. They were just three guys amongst a bunch of, like, punk kids that were going around. You wouldn't have thought those three guys are more special than three other guys. Um, there was just a group of, of young people. In fact, they kind of moved as a collective. There's a few of their early fans. And it was not – that's why I'm saying it's almost like the Bay Area thing. It's, it's, it's similar in many ways. So, sort of, you know, I, I was I was right there, and I'm watching, you know, Rick kind of build this 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 record company and take these ideas, which he described to me, and then put them into practice. So, you know, when he said that, like, there's really no difference. You could take. He was doing what the what the um, hip hop DJs were doing, which was take a beat, uh, like. Uh, you know, he was talking about "Walk This Way" years before he did it with Run DMC. He was saying that these DJs would would take the first part of that record, mix it. They would have two copies of it. Rick Rubin had two copies of it, and he'd spin them back and forth. They didn't want to get to the lyrics. They didn't care about the lyrics. They liked that beat, and they'd spin it back and forth, and then they'd have a guy rap over it. Well, that was happening years before he ever did that recording. So, you know, it was it was there, and it was all happening. Rubin was on the forefront. I was just you know listening and. And, and riding right along and, you know, of course, developing my skills as a filmmaker. And it luckily it all met at this one perfect moment.
2: Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have any special memories of being on the set for those videos? Did you keep in touch with Carrie for, uh, uh, since oh. No Sleep Till Brooklyn?
0: Well, uh, something about that. Um, I mean, on the set. I was on the set for... for um, for some music videos on this set for, I was on the set for the making that, you know, run the MC star making a film called Tougher Than leather that Rick was, Rick was directing. And my, my co-writer, Rick Manello, you know, wrote that also. And, uh, and then the beasties thing happened. And so we got to direct, you know, the, the, the two beastie movie, uh, the two beastie videos, fight for right to party and no sleep till Brooklyn. But the, the, um, so I was on a lot of sets. Yeah. For a lot, of, a lot of hip hop and a lot of early metal and stuff. I, 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 Didn't direct for Danzig, but I I was one of the filmmakers helping to make a lot of that stuff. Manello actually directed the the original Mother video, and uh, but you know, so I was around for great video. Yeah, exactly. So I was (laughs) like a lot of stuff, and I directed a bunch of metal stuff too. Um, I forget what the question was, but it was like, yeah, I mean, I was just around (laughs) for all that, and in certain cases, I got to direct. So that's kind of that's kind of how it was. But you, you definitely saw something unfolding that was. That was quite unique, and it was it was great to to observe and be part of.
1: Did you uh, Did you catch uh, any of those shows the Beasties did in in uh, Brooklyn last year uh, yeah. at the King's Theater? Yeah, yeah, I that their their like presentation sort of reminded me of your movie, but in in a separate way. I guess Spike's doing a movie now.
0: They filmed uh, it with great. Yeah. I thought it was terrific, and it was great to see them out there doing that. And, uh, I, you know, people like to have kept in touch. I I really haven't, you know, the beasties were their own thing. I mean, it just shows how talented they were that they, they didn't, they didn't need a filmmaker amongst them. They had that. They didn't need a producer amongst them. They had that too. Eventually, you know what I mean? They moved on and they became their own self-sufficient unit in a great way. And, and believe me when, when the original album came out of license tail, there was, if I always remind people go back and read the reviews because well, a lot of people said it's great, also pointed out, oh, this is a one hit wonder. This is going to be the thing we laugh at years from now that it's like, you know, it's like, oh, it's that song from the 60s. That was a one hit thing. And we all can be like, oh, that was cool. And that's that's what Fight for Right to Party will be. I didn't think so. And, you yeah. know, ultimately a lot of people were proven wrong and they created great music. But it was it, it was thought that. At the time, mm-hmm. so yeah. I'll tell you about, about Kerry, Kerry King, though. So I did the, the video. Kerry King, of course, in there, and um, <laughs> the, they talk about the "No Sleep Till Brooklyn" music video. Um, I was in the gorilla suit. Kerry King,
2: ah.
0: me <laughs> <off>. <laughs> my my. my was a les- guy. My my SG junior guitar, yeah, that, that that I still have that doesn't play, but it still still exists. And yeah, he shows me off with those spikes, so I got a I got a dose of the spikes right away. And I you know I mean Slayer went on to be Slayer and and do all the things they did. Hmm. And all these years later, when I interviewed Kerry for um, Murder in the Front Row, we did the whole interview, and at the, at the end of the interview, I just said I did I didn't want to get off track well actually let me put it to you this way i got i was given it was a show day so i'm I'm always i always love these guys they actually gave me time on a show day okay they got a million things to do they gotta prepare for a show and they gave me some of their time and that is that is that is amazing so kerry was the briefest uh gary holt gave me a lot of time tom mariah great paul bostaff you know gave me a piece of his time which was awesome but Kerry had 15 minutes, you get 15 minutes and he's wearing his shades and he's Kerry King. And, you know, (laughs) I'm just like, you know, just go. And he's amazing. He's great. And then, you know, it was like somebody came in knocked on the door and it's like, you know, you gotta let him go. That's it. But as he stood up and I think we were turning the cameras off, I I go, Hey man, I said, you won't, you not that you remember this, but I said, I'm, I was the co-director of, 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 um, of, you know, no sleep till Brooklyn. And I said, I was in the gorilla suit, and, and he, you know, we had a laugh about it. It was, it was really, it was really funny, and he was very, very nice. He's like, oh yeah, that was, that was good, that was funny, you know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> He's a sweetheart at heart.
0: Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
3: I, I, I like when you.
0: I like when a you tattoo handle.
3: just for you. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I like in the movie when he says, "I'm not going to tell you my name. Everybody knows who I am." Yeah, exactly. He's not wrong. <laughs> He's no. <laughs> I, I smile. We all smile, right? I'm like, I get it. All right.
0: It's scary yeah. It's
3: scary So, Adam, one one last question for me. Uh, there's a couple left. We're going to do. I'm going to do uh, one based upon an episode we did recently. We had a, a podcast episode because we're quarantined. We we had a desert island podcast. We kind of put ourselves out there on our own islands, and we were allowed to bring five albums along to listen, and that was it. We're going to be marooned with those five albums now, i'm putting you on the spot so i don't know if you can get all five but if you think of desert island discs that you're going to have to have if you're stranded forever anything pop into your head that has to come with you
0: yeah um it's you know it's probably it may not be a, a, a metalhead list and everything because I, I really don't oh, know it doesn't, it doesn't that's fair yeah i'm a blues guy so it, it's like it goes back to you know some some I probably to if I had to listen over and over, it'd be like, uh, you know, some, some early blues thing from, um, um, uh, you know, Muddy or Howlin' Wolf. It would de- if there's one Stones record, it'd be Exile on Main Street. Cause I could listen to it all nice. the time. It would be people have asked me many times what my favorite Metallica record is and, You know, for me, because that's when I I came into the 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 moving river of Metallica. It's 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 you know the Black Album. I mean, it's just special to me, and I could listen to it. Um, and uh, and I I probably want to uh say I'm 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 just right now unpacking the new and listening to the New um, Testament album. That's that's really awesome. The one that's just
1: it it is, yeah, just came out this week,
0: yeah, of creation. And so I'm saying, if you're gonna maroon me this week, I'd probably want to like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> something new that I, I'm not like all in on, you know, and uh, and then you know some 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 kind of I'm I'm kind of a newer uh, convert to like jazz. I just never dug into it, and so I'd probably find some jazz record that I that I want to want to take with me because that'd be something new to explore. And and I, I'd be pretty good for a while, you know what I mean? I rotate amongst them. It couldn't all be thrash metal. It couldn't all be heavy metal. It couldn't all be blues. It's just it's I gotta mix it up a little bit, you know. So and probably I have to figure out a hip hop album or something in there. But yeah.
4: <laughs> you're you're in a good city for jazz, so you'll be
0: fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't I, five's hard to keep it to, man. You know no no we started and off we started off at
2: one and then we're like uh eh, let's make it five yeah so <laughs> exactly. you, know, you have you have backups
0: right. but
2: uh adam we really appreciate you spending some time with us and uh we're, we're of course uh really appreciative of the film that you've given the world here with murder in the so front good. row so good uh, so we, so we have to ask you know so what what do you what are you working on now
0: so i you know there's 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 always something else that you try to keep going, but I'm really right now just just finishing out this. You know, again, it's a very homemade kind of thing. I mean, I didn't have a big staff of people and everything, and and so I'll just say a couple things about the the release itself. I don't know when this runs or anything, but um, it's not gonna be
2: ready. It'll be ready tomorrow.
0: Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Great. With uh,
2: quarantine uh, hours. No
0: rush, but you know, it's like uh, the, the 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 movies released everywhere on April 24th is it's coming out in a few different formats, but I think, I think metalhead people will appreciate this. Um, and I know middle-aged metalheads will, because I'll tell you why it's like, if the film is coming out on digital download and, and, and rental streaming, it'll be in 4k. Like if you want iTunes, you can rent it in 4k. So it'll look nice. 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 You can rent it in 2K, and that's fine. Also, it's going to look look beautiful. And you can buy it. You can rent or stream it. We don't have a TV deal. At one point, at some point, we'll get one. But right now, th- these are good. We did a limited edition DVD. It was the limited edition. S- Pre sales was so strong that we like had to like ex- fully expand <laughs> the limited. edition. Now, let me let me tell you oh, what because wow. I think it's really special, and and guys our age will love it. It's in a DVD case. People have asked, what about Blu-ray? Blu-ray is really expensive to master. If if we at some point maybe we'll do a Blu-ray, but that's not that's not it now. We did a, a, a DVD in a beautiful slip case. When it opens up, it's got two pockets in it. We did various posters during the making of the film. So there's that's a poster right, with yeah. uh, with Cliff Burton, which is just this you know wash of hair, head banging. And we did that poster. We did a mini poster by one of the Bay Area artists who's in the film, a guy named Mark DeVito. And he did a, a version, which it has all like the drawing. It almost looks like it was done on loose leaf paper, like all of us did back then, drawing yeah. the long- <laughs> doodles. Yeah. And then we were very fortunate, a big fan of the film, um, Dirty Donnie, who's, who's done a lot of artwork, does Metallica artwork and kind of has this style that's like kind of like 60s car graphic kind of style and he did this poster of this monster face and we did that in two versions so these were all mini posters in there folded in in there and nice. a sticker for murder in the front row and of course i go back to the first kiss album i bought was rock and roll over and it had a great sticker in it of kids <laughs> that's right?
2: right
0: so that's hot shit everybody drink exactly so <laughs> yeah, exactly drink to that so this is all in there it's a limited edition now i've said this a bunch of times and and i and i wanted something that's collectible you can have your download and I, and the download will look beautiful but you if you ever meet gary holt he can't sign your downhole, d- download but he can sign your the poster DVD from, from row yeah. i will sign it Anybody can sign it, and I think it's great. So so I love a physical piece of artwork, and you can stare at it and look at that picture like we used to.
2: Absolutely, and I, and I think that was the thing when I kept looking up the 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 book and the film on Amazon, the poster kept coming up. I, I, I mentioned this. I don't know if you get any proceeds from this, but that's that's definitely something that, that people are selling.
0: People want – I mean, we, we made the poster, but the first thing that happened people wanted to buy it. We made it originally – for the movie theaters that the movie was going to play in. Yeah. And they, you know, at the end of a run of anything, they usually take it down and like, like talk, usually it's thrown out. Occasionally sure. it's sent to the company, I don't think they want it. Cause it's usually it's been in every case, everything we went to, there was always the usher or somebody's like, I'll take Can that.
2: I have that. Yes, <laughs> I want that.
0: People started wanting to buy them. And I was like, you know, it's not a, a profit making thing, it really isn't. It was just like, let's put it out there, let's cover our costs and, you know, I'm just happy if people enjoy it. Again, a physical piece of artwork, because I think all of this stuff is great. And I was complimenting uh, uh, Alex Skolnick the other day, uh, you know, he, he did an unbox video for the Titans of Creation and I said, you know just stare at that album cover for a little while you know this great stuff you're seeing in yeah. it yeah momentum on it it's it's beautiful it's beautiful to, to to get still give out artwork like that yeah
2: no and I, and again we we we're, we're nerds like that and we're collectors like that and <laughs> and, and, and again i think that that's 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 part of our you know our, our part of our demographic here that we we get nostalgic and we get possessive yeah. and we we're acquisitive by nature so we just want like to hold physical possessions that remind us of our metal experiences. Right. And, uh, but again, we, we really appreciate you spending some time mm. with us, Adam, and, and I'll let everybody else give you some more accolades here, but Absolutely. Uh, we definitely want everybody to, to, and you'll, you'll send us a link or send us the, the information and we'll, we'll definitely push it on our, uh, on our platform so that everybody gets out uh, or, or just stays in and sees it. <laughs> Yeah, you're right.
4: Stay home. Stay home and watch this. Stay hopefully home and we'll, watch stay, and hopefully we'll be row. back on our porches yeah. and backyards by April 24th. But April 24th, digital download uh, everywhere. Hopefully uh, people can check this out in their, in their favorite formats. Uh, I've got it on pre-order because uh, I can't wait for this. Uh, I'm going to watch it again. And, and again,
2: you're going to get the posters, are you, I David? better
4: get them. Oh, yeah. I'm coming oh. to your house about to get this poster. <laughs> and you can sign it. And you can sign it That's the it.
0: cool thing. Why did we pick April 24th? Tell because me. It, there are certain days that are release dates, right? You can't just pick any date you want. But it is because it is the, the closest release date, and it is the day before Paul Bailoff's birthday on April 25th. So oh. long okay. live the of Paul Bailoff.
1: Nice. There you go. Well, well done. done. That's appropriate well enough. Done. enough.
0: Murder there in the front row.
1: Thank you again to director Adam Dubin Of Murder in the Front Row You can pre-order his movie on MIFTR.com For Colin Bosler, David Timoney Mike Stamps and myself, John Harden We will talk to you next week I just want to say one thing first Posers must die we were out of our minds, we were kind of crazy. We were just kids. Kids run amok. It was scary and it was dark. It's this outlet for angst. I'm Alex Skolnick, born and raised in Berkeley, California. Hey, I'm James Hetfield from Metallica. This is the music you don't want your parents to hear. Gary Holt, David Ellison, bassist for Megadeth. I don't need to say my name. Everybody watching this knows who I am. <laughs> we're doing it for chicks and beer, and I didn't drink. My name's Chuck Billy, grew up in California. And the pits were violent as hell. Mark Gustigator from the San Francisco Bay Area.
2: Phil Demel from Dublin, California. The volume, the
3: craziness was epic. Wow,
1: we gotta do more of this. Rob Flynn, Oakland, California. My name is Rick Hunolt. I play guitar for Exodus.
3: People have a passion for the metal. There's no distinction between the bands and the fans. We called it the land of misfit toys.
1: People in our scene, we felt
2: invincible. It was about survival.
1: It was like, ah! Exodus had the destruction recipe. If Exodus was playing, we were there. That's
2: Paul Bailoff. Kurt came up with a name and we were just like,
1: wow.
4: What was the question again? My name is Lars Ulrich and I'm from Denmark.
0: Tom Mariah, fucking Slayer. Singer and bass player for Slayer. I got goosebumps talking about it right now.
1: And My name is Paul Bostaff. Larry Lalonde, El Sobrani, California. Charlie
2: Benanti and I'm from the Bronx, New York. Dave Lombardo, Southeast LA. There was an aura of watching history happen.
0: Yeah, East Bay guys. They played before us, and that was kind of a mistake. I am Robert Trujillo. I'm from Santa Monica, California. There goes that guy who was a Metallica. What's he up to? It wasn't as exciting as you thought it would be, was it?